to Potadelphia. My name is Dave DiGiorgio. You can find me on Twitter at fat underscore lobster. And I'm joined by two guys who have paid their debt to society. What's up, Chuck and Gene? Oh, that's a that's a clever foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about tonight. Yes. Uh, I'm not qu- I'm not quite certain if I have paid my debt to society. So society, you tell me if I owe you something, if I need to make amends uh, as part of the 12 step process, let me know. Uh, my name is Chuck Siders. You can find me on Twitter at Chuck Siders. You can find the show at Potadelphia. And just to clarify, I'm, I'm not actually getting sober. So <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> What's and, going on, Gene? And this is Gene Zilak. You can find me on Twitter at producer Gene. And um, yeah, so, uh, society and I were pretty square, uh, but um, you never know. It's always good to have a little bit uh, in the uh, what do they call that in the in the the pro side of the ledger. You always want to have a little to the. Yeah, you want to be in the black. You want to be in the black. So yeah, it's nice to it's nice to feel like I'm a little ahead of the game. During my college years, I've danced that line quite a bit. Well, I mean, I feel like that's part of the whole college experience is to see how close you can get to the red without being in jail. <laughs> well, when you're in cuffs in a cop car on your way to jail, that's about as close as you can get. That's very close. That's yeah, very close. I'm very thankful to have uh, some good friends. Yeah. Some good friends on the force at that time? No, no. Oh, not no. that good friend. A different good friend. Some some good friends that, that were uh, that were very generous in paying off my 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 quote unquote debt to society. There you go. <laughs> it's like in hockey when you have when the goalie gets a penalty, he doesn't serve it. True. <laughs> so when Dave when Dave crosses the law, Dave doesn't pay it either. He he's the goalie of life. Yeah. I I nominate one of my friends to go to jail for me. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good deal. <laughs> it's a good deal we got going on here. But uh, so this week, uh, we're we're feeling we're feeling comebacks. The country's trying to make a comeback. Uh, you know whether we're ready for it or not. Um, but we're thinking we're thinking sports comebacks, and uh, and and we wanted to get some more Eagles love in here because for all of our rewatches that we've done uh, since the shutdown. Uh, we haven't done a, a, a Philadelphia Eagles game, and how could we? I mean, how could we leave that omission uh, for so long? So that is week, surprising. Yeah, it's surprising since, so long. Yeah, especially since there's so many good, you know, like modern era Eagles games we could revisit that are in yeah. high definition and tolerable to watch on a big screen TV. <laughs> So we decided to revisit, and this is you know maybe where we should start the conversation because it's the subject of some conjecture here. We decided to rewatch Miracle at the Meadowlands two, and uh, if you know, in my mind, Miracle at the Meadowlands two has always been the the thirty one to ten comeback fourth quarter comeback, and I agree. Uh, we were chatting about this over text earlier in the day and i didn't go back hadn't yet watched um what we originally called miracle at the meadowlands 2 when setting it up but was titled miracle at the new meadowlands i knew i didn't have a miracle in the meadowlands 3 but i thought miracle at the meadowlands 2 and then miracle at the new meadowlands and that is how I 
differentiate. But honestly, the Miracle at the Meadowlands 2 might get lost a little more to to history, just not being nearly as miraculous as the new, uh, the Miracle at the New Meadowlands. Right, and for uh, for those that aren't as familiar with it, uh, so what we watched was as far as Miracle at the New Meadowlands was from 2010, which uh, we probably would have done a 10 year anniversary episode about this uh, in December. Uh, you know, ha- had we had actual sports to talk about now, so you know, it's just we're just moving up the timeline a little bit. Uh, but Miracle at the Meadowlands two, uh, you know, you could consider. It was 2003? No, no, no. It was this. It was 2006. It's the year after the Super Bowl. Oh. And oh. the Eagles were... Yeah, I did a little research on this. Uh, I've actually watched as much as footage as you can find on the first Miracle of the Meadowlands, which is not a lot, honestly. I could not find a full game of the original Miracle of the Meadowlands. But honestly, really, all you need to know is the situation that the Giants found themselves in in the first Miracle of the Meadowlands, uh, which is if you fall on the fucking football um, and don't fumble it, you win. Um, And what I didn't realize was how many people then proceeded to lose their jobs. Um, (laughs) Most of the front office for the Giants and the starting quarterback. Uh, But then that gave birth to the Parcells, Sims, era of giants football so um you're welcome new york giants um <laughs> and i think it also gave birth to the quarterback taking a knee well like it, that's... It, there was always the concept of, of taking the knee what it gave birth to was um what is now considered the victory formation and the and the rules Got surrounding it. that um Got like you know that became the what we know as as taking a knee came into you could always have kind of like taken it as the quarterback and kind of just dived behind the center um which was basically what everybody who was a giants fan uh wanted Pichar- Pisarchek I can never do that name that <laughs> That's been close enough uh Joe Polish last name to do um in that game. He didn't obviously. And, uh, Herm Edwards, uh, got a career and, uh, coaching jobs and all kinds of things after that. Um, not that Herm Edwards was a bad player, but I mean, certainly it doesn't hurt to be the guy associated with something called the miracle of anything. Um, the second play sticks out more. The second one we talk about, I had forgotten a lot about because fun fact, I didn't watch this football game. The one that happened in 2006. I was driving back from an out-of-state wedding while the game was happening on. I listened to every single play of the game, but did not see this live. Um, It was uh, a very low-scoring, Kerry Collins era. uh, What was that? the Giants coach uh, in that time? Um, He's the one that actually took them to a Super Bowl against Fossil. Was it Fossil? Fossil, yes. Jim Fossil. So... uh, it's a great prelude to the game we're going to talk about because uh, it was uh, that season, if you remember, that is the first season of Lincoln Financial Field, uh, 2006. We come out against um, the um, P- Tampa Bay Buccaneers to open the season and the New England Patriots lose both games. Uh, then we win to lose one. and uh, we have, We're coming off a loss to Dallas, I think, the week before. This is was considered at the time they were talking his week six game where they're talking about this is must win, got to save the season sort of sort of stuff. Uh, it's a very low scoring game in the fourth quarter. It's ten to seven. There is less than two minutes on the clock when the Giants once again have to kick the ball to the Eagles. The Eagles um, 
kick the ball to a second year uh, player named. But this was a kickoff, right? Not no, a no, punt. no. It was a punt. It was a punt. Okay. From Sean Landetta, former Eagle, um, <laughs> who well, that time I think future Eagle. Maybe he was future Eagle. Soon, yeah, that's what I think would have been soon to be Eagle. Um, <laughs> he was probably in his twenty fourth or twenty fifth season at the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, and and that that punt is not a clean kick either. It it bounces in front of Brian Westbrook, who uh, is not the starting running back for the day. Uh, he is backing up Corell Buckhalter at the time, and uh, it takes a it takes a weird bounce. Westbrook fields it, and partly due to basically the Giants on full sprint, and it, it basically causes the 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 gunner to overrun the the play. He the ball bounces, and the guy's going so fast he runs past where the ball bounces, and Westbrook just runs past him grabs the 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 punt and runs right up the sideline. Um, the thing that's interesting about this and why I have not necessarily considered it miraculous is because, A, it was the middle of the season, and as much as it is a must-win game, it didn't actually win us a division or put us into the playoffs or anything like that. Um, but we act, the Giants actually have almost a minute and 30 seconds left where we give them the ball back, and they're only down four. Um so to me, the the miraculous part of the other two games that we call the Miracle at the Meadowlands, both of those games are walk-offs. Once that play, you know, once that happens, the Eagles take the lead basically for good. At no point do they have, you know, is there a chance for the Giants to respond? Um, so to and the other thing is both of those things, the game is essentially for all intents and purposes over. Uh, in the first one, and then in the second one, if not for uh, Tom Coughlin being as completely idiotic as he is, which we're going to talk about, um, that game should have been essentially over. Um, so I just think I just think the the one the 2010 game is the most miraculous miracle at the Meadowlands that there is. I mean, so many things had to happen. Yeah. In just the right way that they did. I mean, you do not come back from 21 points with eight minutes left, you know, in games very often. And and to end the and to end the game not in overtime. Well, and the other thing that was if you were watching the actual game, one of the things is that I had totally forgotten about is we did that with a guard at center. Yeah. Yeah. And Vic <laughs> is, is a crazy. backwards quarterback. Who can't well, slide? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about all this. Though. We'll break this all. So down. I mean, yeah. th- my point being, I think that there are two miracles at the Meadowlands. I think that that game in 2006 is an incredible comeback. It is maybe the reason that Brian. But it's Westbrook a one is, score. Like it's like a one score thing. It's just it's like also, it was a great play, right? And it's also in week six. And it, you know, I mean, like there are a lot. There are probably a lot of other games that have something similar. The other two games earn the title of miracle because they are things that. Um, should not and would not happen. It's not that unrealistic to think that we would return a punt in that situation. And the Giants yeah. are are correctly punting there. And even if the Giants punt it out of bounds, we still have almost a minute and a half. Um, I just think as a Giants fan, which one would make me vomit the most? And it's the 2010 game. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, certainly. Certainly. And I think maybe 2006 sticks out more because let's take a moment to talk about Brian Westbrook because at first he was kind of just 
uh, like gravy. It was, hey, you know that Westbrook kid is not too bad. We got him from Villanova. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I like Westbrook. He's pretty good. And yeah, great punt returner, that sort of thing. And maybe from this not quite miraculous event at the Meadowlands onwards, that became, hey, you know what? Brian Westbrook's really damn good, and he's going to be our guy going forward. So maybe that's why it sticks with us, because it is such a great defining moment of the beginning of the rise of Brian Westbrook. The Eagles also go on to win nine straight and make the playoffs in that in that year, too. Right, so it's kind of like, even if they lost that yeah. game... But it, it it sort of was a springboard. It might not have gotten home field. Yeah, it, I, it, I don't, it was I don't a springboard know. to um, the career of Brian Westbrook, springboard to that particular team. But if 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 the Vatican was to look at it, I don't know if it would pass muster. All right, so the, the other thing is, is I kind of want to not give Donovan McNabb era a miracle at the Meadowlands. <laughs> well, in retrospect, it certainly doesn't count like just again to go back to that text conversation that we had it was i think you dave suggested let's do miracle at the meadowlands too and we all knew what you were talking about it was the 2010 vic uh, deshaun jackson comeback and that was the first thought and then it was wait a second wasn't there another one you know that's been lost to history and I think rightfully so. Well, I was I, doing research. I, I, think... I was doing research, and I saw a site that was ranking the miracles at the Meadowlands, and they had like four of them. Well, what the fuck is this, Lords? <laughs> like, no, like, you know, whatever. I mean, like, <laughs> every time you win in New York, it's a miracle. Come on. Get <laughs> well, the first miracle in Meadowlands was that kid who walked after Eli Manning touched him. You know, <laughs> Eli Manning came up, did a quick blessing. The kid got out of the wheelchair. That's number one. The next three all involve the Eagles. All right, but let's talk about this 2010 team because, you know, for me, this game was kind of like my last positive memory of Andy Reid. Oh, it's it's certainly Andy Reid's, uh, like it's his capstone moment, I believe. Like this is the the last Eagles Andy Reid and and oddly enough there was a part of me that to a certain degree when I first started up the game I was like wait is, is this isn't a Chip Kelly game right that's too early for a Chip Kelly game um, and I was actually really glad it wasn't Chip Kelly because I wouldn't have wanted to be like oh I guess Chip Kelly did know how to coach um, and you're uh, right well we didn't win this game because of coaching by the way I was just about to say <laughs> it's hard to find. Uh, but the, the joy of it was watching us sort of do what we do in spite of so many stereotypical Andy Reid decisions. Yeah, so <laughs> going into this game, uh, both the Eagles and the Giants are 9-4. and four. Um, We had, it's a December game, it was a week 15 game. The, the Fox logo had Christmas lights around it with little snowflakes gently falling on top of it, which I enjoyed. Um, the Eagles had the number one ranked offense going into this game, which I thought was pretty wild. Vic's at quarterback, reads the coach. Sean McDermott is the D as the D coordinator. Moses Foku is a player on the Eagles. <laughs> 
and I, and the, our offensive line is terrible. And the storyline going into this game is, uh, and I remembered this, uh, was that Michael Vick is not protected in the way other quarterbacks around the league were. And it, and it, it was a, it was a big debate on sports talk radio in Philadelphia, whether this was a racial issue or if this was a play style issue. And it's a it's a good debate, too. And then I I remember also from the time of is Vic doing enough to protect himself? Like, is he um, well, maybe doing enough to get the calls? Is he a smart enough runner that, you know, it looks as if, you know, he's making the smart play and, and removing the possibility of injury? But it was a, a great debate at the time is is Michael Vick not getting the calls because he's a black quarterback playing the, you know, quote unquote, black quarterbacks game where it's the, I can throw the ball. I can run the ball. I can, you know, hand it off or whatever. Also having come back from jail, you know, having, you know, paid his debt to society. um, Was he being looked at with this stigma and, or is it, Vic's a running quarterback. He gets himself in trouble. We can't protect him if he's going to make himself into a running back. And I, I think the truth lies somewhere in between, but, you know, when in doubt, go racism. You know, the history of at least North America supports it. Well, it's not but, it's not a unique debate to the Eagles because this happened, this also came up with Cam Newton a few years ago. Yeah. Well, it happened and, well, and, and not maybe not to the same degree, but it certainly happened uh, in the mid '80s with Doug Williams. Although he was not quite the same style of quarterback, it was a question of whether or not he had the intellectual capacity to play the position. Yeah, well, that was racism. I mean, that we're gonna. Yeah. We well, yes, yes, it was. Playing... <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, Gene's not making that point. <laughs> In a very special episode of Potadelphia, we find out something about Gene we wish we never found out. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, like it, it is. I don't know. Philadelphia does have a, a, you know, kind of a legacy of, you know, black scrambling quarterbacks. And it's, I mean, they've had the yeah. two greatest to ever do it play significant starts at quarterback in the city there's, I there's mean, no to other be honest it's it's one that i kind of like i i love that style of of play it's super exciting and it's you know i always mm-hmm. felt like it gave people it gave us an advantage that other teams didn't have when you have that scrambling quarterback and you know when you listen to the negadelphia or you know wip or whatever and everyone's just like can't we just have a drop back passer I just want a, a, yeah. a, a prototypical drop back passer. And like, why, why would you want that? It doesn't seem nearly as exciting. It's <laughs> like, it's like, why can't I have an Indiana Jones movie where he doesn't have a whip? Like, can I just have a, a, an archeologist <laughs> that doesn't have a bull whip? <laughs> well, and, and the prototypical pocket passer is a euphemism for white. That's good like, for white. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's a hundred percent like, and, and it's not like we had the quarterback who was better suited to be a running back. 
where and I'm, I'm struggling to think of an example, but it's like, all right, has an okay arm. Oh, I got the guy. Adequate. Who's the guy? It's Dante Culpepper. Yes, thank you, one hundred percent. And even Dante Culpepper, like just his size. This was just he's a really big dude, and he do a couple things kind of well. Like let's make him a quarterback because they touch the ball the most. But the quarterbacks we had, you know, with Donovan, with Randall, to a lesser extent, Donovan was a much better passer than Randall. And with Vic, they could all do everything. Why the hell wouldn't you want that? I think the the logical debate is, you know, how injury prone your multifaceted quarterback could be. But it was such a racially, t- still is, tinged conversation of, you know, he's a athletic quarterback. He's a running quarterback. And as Donovan's career went on, that became less and less a characteristic of it. Vic was a category unto himself. You know, he he took that running quarterback and damn well, I mean, he... He was not just somebody who could run a little bit well. He was a threat to do it. If you gave him any bit of an opening, he was the best running back on your team. And you know? and he Vick, had a freaking cannon for an arm. Yeah, Michael Vick, I watched the game with my son who knew nothing about any of these players. Um, Mike Vick running, it's so weird to watch him run because he doesn't look like he's moving fast. It's just like he's gliding and going and just accelerating. And it's like, I, I don't, it, it looks so effortless when he runs. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's just ahead of everybody. And, you, and you know, my son was like, oh, my gosh, like, look at this guy. It's so different from watching. Yeah, and there was no like, scramble to it. Yeah, it's so different from watching a guy like Wentz. When Wentz breaks out of a, a you know, goes into a broken play or a scramble, it looks a lot more like a guy who is – putting a lot more effort into gutting out some sort of a play. Uh, when Vic did, yeah. it looked like a guy who was um, – the best way I've always uh, always understood Vic was it was like you, he had a cheat code. Uh, it's like you, you yeah. had an unfair advantage because he had some ability unlocked um, within this game that made it – you know, made him so different from any other – player on the team it's almost like by having that skill set you gained an unfair advantage which is why I feel like a lot of um, his critics certainly early in his career would try and knock his ability to read a defense Um, and honestly one of the things I always thought was unfair about that was if he spent too much time reading a defense, he was essentially trying to play with one arm tied behind his back. If you spend all this time with him trying to get through a third and fourth progression, you are not utilizing maybe the one unique thing that your team has is this player who can completely gas an entire defense by himself. Um, The amazing thing is he also was out of the game for as long as he was and still came back and had the skill set of a quarterback that was certainly in the top 10 of the position. I don't know if he ever was a top 10 quarterback for the Eagles. He was probably around the top 15 at certain points in his Eagles career, but um, it was it was certainly an interesting experiment. 
Uh, do I think he is in the top five greatest Eagles quarterbacks of all time? I don't. Um, but I certainly uh, came around and, and enjoyed watching him play. I And I actually think this is Vic's second best game as an Eagle. Behind the first Redskins game with uh, that with Red, Joe, Yeah, that Redskins game where he put up almost 400 yards of offense and um, still, like, as far as I'm – from what I understand – that game is one of the highest scoring fantasy football games by a single player ever. So do you, um, and Chuck, you, you and know... I watched that at the Wells Fargo center. If you remember that correctly. Oh, oh I do. It was flyers versus Ottawa yep. senators. The flyers kicked the senators ass as well, but I mean, not, not anything in comparison. I thought it was the typo when it came up on the Wells Fargo screen, or maybe it was Wachovia at the time. I can't remember. But it was like, nice, oh, the Eagles are winning. I'm like, wait, what's that number? Wait, what period is it? Sorry, what quarter is it? It was, we were dumbfounded. And the whole arena was as well. It was, that was a great night. That was a great night. Yeah, so, you know, we go in this game. So, hey, do you guys know anybody who left the the Eagles fandom because of Michael Vick and, like, still has not returned? I know one guy. Yeah, I know one person too. I don't know how I. I don't know that. anybody. I don't know anyone who stayed away. I. I watched this game through a ver with a very different mindset today, than I did watching Vic the first time around. I I was a Michael Vic fan rewatching this game. Like the whole idea that he had paid his debt to society, you know, maybe another decade of people abusing their wives or girlfriends or kids or whatever and seeing no consequences made me feel like, hey, the guy who did something reprehensible, but paid, went to jail, came back and, and, and was a productive member of society. All of a sudden, I'm I was rooting for this dude hard. Back back in the day, I didn't like it. I didn't want to have to root for him. I wanted him to get a job, and I felt like it was Buffalo. I I want to say like they stunk at the time. They needed a quarterback. I'm like, send Vic to Buffalo. You know, let them take on a quarterback. Let him have a second chapter. I just didn't want to have to root for him. And this game, or around this time, I remember thinking, you know, I had two young nephews who are not so young anymore, and, you know, I have a lot more nieces and nephews and kids of my own now, but I remember thinking, I didn't want to see them at the championship parade chanting Vic, wearing Vic jerseys, and having this to be this celebratory hero. You know, it's one thing to go, hey, you paid your debt to society. I want you to have a chance. It's another thing to go, yay, dog killer. Good job, dog killer. Which, honestly, I would find myself doing in the time of, you know, Vic would make a tremendous play. I'm like, go, go, go. Get the first down, you fucking dog killer. Like, that is how I watch those games. But in hindsight, with everything that's, gone on in the last 10 years i i give him a much bigger pass 
know, he went to jail. He did his time. He did what he was supposed to do. Um, but at the time, I I was a really hesitant Michael Vick fan. Yeah, I mean, like, it's really hard to excuse someone who, you know, took part in or coordinated in, you know, the torture of dogs. I, I mean, like, that person's kind of a scumbag, no matter how you cut it. But, I mean, like... If the if the guy went to jail and then he came out, you know, I, I don't know. It, it really is tough, especially through the lens of a decade, um, to have that same intensity, you know, a passion around feeling a certain way about it. It it it, it does wane a bit. I, I would never, I would never buy a Vic jersey, um, even as some sort of like classic retro jersey or anything like that. Um, but it was, he was an incredible talent. It was really fun to watch. And I think that is part of what is going to be the continued um, tarnishment or, or, or punishment of, of him as a player. He would have gone down as probably an all-time great. And uh, maybe he would have played his whole career and won championships uh, with the Atlanta Falcons, and he would be uh, iconic. And I think that uh, instead of him having that status as being – this um this new prototype uh this iconic player um in the sport he's going to be uh, a guy who was good and whose talent was perhaps um by his own uh, vices his own uh, bad decisions his own uh his own poor life choices <laughs> is going to end up being just a really good player with some great highlights and uh, probably very seriously not a bust in Canton. Hey, speaking of which, is is Vic more Eagle or Roy Halladay more Philly? Vic is more Eagle. <laughs> Agree. Yeah, well, it's for, for a couple of reasons. A, I think he put in more time here. Uh, B... A quarterback is just carries weight more than your your starting number one pitcher. You know they they give you you know what a game every four days on short rest, but his redemption began in Philly. His the second chapter of his career, which went on for a, a good long while, began in Philadelphia. It he. You know, he, if he did go to Canton, probably the first person he'd thank would be Tony Dungy. Uh, The second probably would be Andy Reid, you know, for giving him a chance to continue his career. So I do think Vic is far more a Philadelphia Eagle than than Halliday was a a Philly. Again, I do like Roy Halliday. Do you think this was the first... um... You know, the first dabbling of Andy Reid's sausage fingers into the second chance, you know, dipping sauce. It was certain it was certainly the most notable one because and I think we touched on this on on previous shows, but it's something that stood out to me was before and if you want to talk about racial overtones and euphemisms and innuendo the eagles had a focus on character guys you know good guys in the room they didn't want 
certain types of players. They wanted these selfless players, people that didn't have Kelly controversies stuff? off the field. Are you talking about the Chip Kelly With what? Stuff? Are you talking about Chip Kelly, like cutting? No, like, no, I'm talking about Andy Reid. Oh. oh. No, no, no. The freaking LaShawn. But no, I'm talking about Andy Reid probably – you know, put a lot, a, a big premium on character guys and didn't want off field distractions. You know, T.O. aside, even though he did nothing wrong, T.O. was just an off field distraction. It wasn't until his sons got in trouble. And then, like, he, he said it. That's the reason why he brought in Vic. And then from that point on, Andy Reid and going, having some higher standard of, you know, the person over the player, um, you know, that was gone. He was, he was a new Andy Reed after his sons got, you know, in the trouble they had. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed, you know, watching this game, so we, you know, we had, we had Jason Peters at this point. Um, and I'm like, man, how can Vic be getting beat up so badly? On a, with an offensive line that's being anchored by Jason Peters. And then Peters it, is on the wrong it dawned side. on me. He's a left-handed quarterback. Yeah, Peters is on the wrong side to help Vic. So and King Peters is, Dunlap Peters, is and protecting I believe, your blind I side. I believe Peters is, like, beginning to peak at that time. Um, he's he's it, just becoming, like, what we know as Jason Peters. And because everything is kind of inverted, uh, what you end up having is the skill set that Jason Peters is really good for. Um, he's not really utilizing it. He's he's sort of more the uh, you know the the pivot piece uh, rather than the the blindside blocker. Um, right, and they had King Dunlap on the yeah. other side, who you who know we all know is not good. No, well, and 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 I can't remember if there was an injury in this game because I wasn't paying that close of attention at the beginning of the game uh, as I was by the fourth quarter. But we did not have a true center it, uh, anchoring that that comeback, which. Um, and watching that as it's as happening, there are so many opportunities um, where this whole thing can unravel if Vic doesn't have the hands that he has to settle a, settle a bad snap. There are a lot of bad snaps in that fourth quarter, at least three that I saw, if not more. Three obvious. Play. Yeah. And if you watch a lot of you know if you watch a lot of these these guys these quarterbacks who are so tuned into rhythm if you were to watch Eli Manning on the other side have to handle some of the snaps that Vic handles in this game uh Eli it, we're not talking about Eli squandering four touchdowns we're talking about Eli giving up four fumbles yeah and and Eli goes into this game uh with the league lead in interceptions which is always fun uh to see hmm. um so let's talk about the comeback a little bit. Um, the Se the Selick touchdown, uh, which kind of uh, got the whole thing started. It, it looked to me like that was, and this was what like a sixty five yard touchdown pass to to Brent Selick, who and I, and you know, I has believe no business catching sixty five yard touchdowns. And I believe it was the longest play, <laughs> and this held up, I believe, as the longest play in his career. And he was, I yeah, think, I, I wouldn't like, be surprised. Like a second uh, but or third it was year kind of, guy. You think it was just like, what well, were all the other plays? Five yards. <laughs> I mean, like for for Brent Selleck, I mean, maybe ten. Yeah, I, he. he I, mean, I, I love Brent Selleck, but yeah. he was your your dribs and drabs down the the field. Yeah, he's steady, Eddie. Uh, 
but I mean, was it more yeah. apathy? Because like the the Giants kind of really had us, at least through the aerial attack. Like they really and had then, Macklin and and Deshaun Jackson really shut down for the entire game. Was it just you know, well, hey, we got a? It, it looks like the defense that they're playing in that in that particular play, uh, they're really trying to cut off anything going to the sideline. They want to kind of keep us centered. They want to keep us. Um, taking the ball and and running clock. They don't want anything to the sideline to you know to stop the clock as we're going up the field. So they're they're playing their cornerbacks much tighter to the sideline. And and Andy Reid just calls, I believe, a routes that keep um, both the wide receivers to the outside. Um, but one of my favorite parts of this particular play, Selig makes the play. And he, I mean, he looks like quintessential Zach Ertz making the play. Um, he's rumbling up the field. He is going to get caught by, I believe, the strong safety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Macklin comes like Keith Byers out of nowhere. Looked like a block in the back to me. And clears the strong safety with one of the best downfield blocks I've ever seen by a wide receiver. I think one of the things that we forget maybe is how good of a player all around Jeremy Macklin was. Because one of the other things that they used a lot in this era of the Eagles was that that um, that play to Deshaun Jackson, that 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 uh, wide receiver screen, which they can only use because you had Jason Avant and Jeremy Macklin, who are such great blocking wide receivers. They also had one of my least favorite Eagles of all time, who was also a good blocker. Um, Sunshine Goofball Riley was also on that squad. Um, and... Um, and he was yeah, a really but he, good. He got the onside kick. He gets the onside kick, which is another another great thing. We had one of the best by percentage onside kick kickers in NFL history kicking for us that day. And you know what? I will say Andy Reid always seemed to use that at, at just the right time. Like he never did it when anyone was expecting it. And it was always executed really well, whether we recovered it or not. But it always seemed like we did recover it. I mean, the most famous one was the one to start the game. Against Dallas. Against Was that the pickle juice game? That's the pickle juice game. That yep. was the pickle juice game. Yeah, that's when we started yeah. calling them big balls. Yep. Yeah, it was Andy Reid and his big Mormon balls of steel, I believe, was the full the full nickname. His full title. And you're right. He really did, did have a talent for knowing when to utilize that onside kick. It wasn't, you know, ooh, I wonder if he does an onside kick here, or now would be a good opportunity. It would be, all right, you know, let, let's hold them to a three and out, and they'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, like, it feel like half the Eagles were surprised. It's like, holy shit, they did an onside kick. Why? Like, why? <laughs> but it, it would work more times than not. With that being said, though, if you were doing like a Madden create a coach and you were allocating like skill points, maybe he could have taken some away from when to call an onside kick and added some more to like clock management or (laughs) when to challenge a call. Like they said going into this game, well, not going into it, but they said at the time when it was critical, they said he had only challenged six plays all year. And it's weeks, it's week 15. Yeah, you should be challenging <laughs> every game. Yeah, I mean, there's with- no reason not to. <laughs> I, I do feel like it was a 
slightly different in 2010 than it is now, but yeah, no, Andy Reid was always bad about that, and he just loved his timeouts and taking them for no good reason. You know, jump to the end. What was the defining refrain of the Eagles' comeback? It's like, all right, they have no timeouts here. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. in, in his defense, they used them you know, at the right time, I, I think. They actually did. To, to my recollection of the game, they used them well. But it was, very, what was very funny just, you know, when the Eagles were going to get the ball back. It's like, now they're not going to have very much time because the Eagles have no timeouts. I just want to reinforce this. The Eagles have <laughs> no timeouts. It's like, yes. And, yes, and also to Andy's credit, he didn't try to take a timeout when he didn't have any. In oh, this God. In this game, how many times did he do that? Once, I think. Well, yes, and it, and he was penalized. We all remember. Well, I'm sorry, what? And he was penalized, so we all remember it, right? Well, yeah, it is a penalty when you try to take a timeout and you don't have any. Um, <laughs> and I've never seen it happen to another coach, although I'm sure it has. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we're so not even not knowing games could end in ties. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, low NFL IQ going around um, in that era. So, so I, um, I feel like it's almost overkill to go through and, and talk about how great Deshaun Jackson is. I think anybody listening to this has probably seen um, some of the things that he does in the game um, as many times. Um, I mean, you, 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 part of me was sitting here re-watching it and being like, please, just one more season of watching him be able to do those sorts of things. I, you know, I don't need to have him uh, have a long second act here for the Eagles, but it would really be nice to have have it this not be more than, oh, remember when we signed Deshaun Jackson? He had that really good game against the Redskins and then never did anything again. Um, I would really prefer that not to be the case. But maybe the, the, the thing that we could really revel in here 10 years later would be how, how much pleasure I took from watching Tom Coughlin <laughs> absolutely and completely um in in some sort of like karmic storm just completely melt down uh capping off with at the end of this game his relationship with his punter um <laughs> which was so epic rather than show the eagles celebrating one of the greatest victories in the franchise in nfl history we are focusing on a head coach yell at his punter yeah um, matt judge uh, matt dodge got the business so <laughs> um I, I i think i can point to three very very bad decisions that tom coughlin makes uh that cost him this game uh po point one um, maybe he did tell Matt Dodge to kick the first punt out of bounds. Um, he doesn't. And the Eagles, uh, get, you know, cause there's two punts in, in, in the series of the comebacks. Uh, the Eagles are able to, um, to get it back. I believe that there's a, a fair catch that is called. I think if Deshaun Jackson maybe runs that back, we get a little better, better field position. Um, but then Coughlin basically plays a very soft defense that leads to the scoring touchdown. Um, the second thing, and probably the first major mistake, is that when, when Coughlin gets the ball back, uh, he comes out on first and second down and throws, and Eli Manning throws two incomplete passes. Which... I don't, you know, I, I, you're gonna, are you going to really 
like call that a mistake on Coughlin. I mean, he's trying he's trying to win the game. Like all you need is a field goal. Why are you throwing the ball though? Even if you but just run on first... it's a tie game. But if you run the ball once and run the clock down, you can't win. But as our favorite, I don't even remember who says it. Is this is this a Madden quote that says that there are three things that happen when when you throw the ball and two of them are bad? Uh, yeah, that's a quote. But there's also a quote that says, "You play to win the game." Yeah. <laughs> no, and and I agree that it's not Coughlin's fault that Eli sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's. And you can't bank on the fact that it's like, all right, well, if we go three and out here, we know that our punter is going to punt a line drive and Deshaun Jackson's going to not re- recover it, then recover it, and then beat everybody and then dance on the goal line. You know, that's it's hard to predict. Yeah, but. but- I think Deshaun knew. I loved watching Deshaun waiting to take that punt. He's like tapping on himself. Like he was already celebrating the Eagles win. And, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of footage of him doing that for a a three yard return. But (laughs) it just watching it with the benefit of hindsight, it looked like this is some dude. It was fun. My son was saying, like, oh, I guess we went in overtime or else you wouldn't be watching it. And I was like, yeah, maybe it'll go to overtime. And, <laughs> and I was like, but just remember, this is called the miracle at the Meadowlands, <laughs> not the random win at the Meadowlands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so th- from this era, like, berry-faced, pissed-off Tom Coughlin, coupled with Eli Manning face, like, defined this era for me. Like, we got we had to watch them win two Super Bowls, together um but it didn't feel like they got the best of us very often and we got to see those two those two things the berry face and the eli face i I feel like fossil had a much better track record and was much oh yeah the fossil tiki barber kind of era of giants football was a hell of a lot harder to watch than than coughlin and oh yeah seeing brandon jacobs gene does that still like piss you off from our fantasy football (laughs) league about brandon jacobs stealing every touchdown from tiki barber that one year we drafted tiki yeah yeah that was not that was not a great year that was not a great year but yeah that's why i have not won a lot of fantasy football hey let me ask you this when um when andy wasn't challenging the deshaun jackson fumble and they they showed the close up of him putting the flag back in his pocket, <laughs> and the ginormous Green Bay Super Bowl ring. Um, you know, I don't know. Is it weird to to be like sporting that like another team's Super Bowl ring when you're the head coach of another team, or no? Nah? I don't know. I'm just asking. I. I... I personally feel that, yes, it is weird, especially when you have put so much time in with the Eagles at that point. You know, he still had another, what, four years or whatever the case may be. But it wasn't like he won the Super Bowl as a quarterback's coach with Green Bay two years beforehand. 
it was a long damn time ago. So it's yeah, that's he wasn't even the head coach of Green Bay. No, he wasn't even a coordinator. He I was, was even going to say, coach. I was even going to say, is, it, is you know, is Mike McCarthy going to wear his Green Bay Super Bowl ring while he's on the sidelines for the Cowboys? Uh, that's and a big no. I would. Assume. Yeah, I mean, you think Jerry's going to like co-sign that i think that probably in their first meeting jerry had his his super bowl rings and was like tapping them on the desk and being like you can only wear blue super bowl rings <laughs> in at&t park <laughs> yeah i don't know i i, 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 I want to backtrack real quick to tom coughlin's raspberry face wherever you called it for me um <laughs> yeah a few things came rushing back to me just starting the game. And one was my hatred for the Giants. You know, they've been, you know, pretty mediocre um, lately. So I, I haven't really had much vitriol for them. Just watching the introduction of this game, I'm like, oh, all that Giants hate came rushing back. And Coughlin always reminded me of one of those like stress dolls. <laughs> like he just squeeze it. And it just seemed like he was going to turn beat red and pass out at any moment. And I loved it. Along with, like you said, Dave, the Manning face on Eli, who in addition to, you know, maybe having the better uh, opponents in the Super Bowl <laughs> than uh, Peyton, no one gave better Manning face than Eli because Eli looked dumb as shit. Like he looked like just kind of annoyed mouth agape, you know? So both well, as an Eagles fan, we saw it basically every game. Oh yeah. Eli did not play well against us. Eli admits it. Um, Oh, it brought back so many good memories of hating the Giants and their futility against us. And Coughlin, you know, knowing that he did not die on the field made it more fun to just right. watch him turn beat red and hyperventilate. I think at the time I always had a bit of concern that I was going to watch a man die when <laughs> Coughlin was on the field I, so I always, knowing that he did not die on the field uh, made it more fun to, I always uh, to just, watch you know there's been a lot of Cowboys um head coaches that as I would watch him be like god he's just an idiot um like Barry Switzer was he just looked like he, he was an idiot like there was nothing about him that made me believe like oh he's gonna outsmart us or out coach us the same thing with Jason Garrett like nothing about him ever really intimidated Wade me Phillips. With Wade Phillips like you know none of these guys were ever like oh man like they're just so, you know the last one that I probably had any respect for as a football mind was probably Jimmy Johnson um you know and it's not like well, Dallas they had Bill Parcells after they did have Bill Parcells after that's true but he'll always be a Giants head coach for me too yeah um you know but in the same way with Coughlin and with most of the Giants um, head coaches, they've always struck me as like, God, I hope that I don't get put in their class next year. Like these seem like that, like that was that teacher that if you were getting ready to go in the sixth grade and you had the choice between like Andy Reed, like, yeah, he seems like he's probably could get really mad, but like, you know, it's going to be really fun in his homeroom. But you know Mr. Coughlin. That guy is such an ass. He <laughs> always grades so hard. <laughs> Didn't he find people if they weren't five minutes early to a meeting? Right, or if you were chewing yeah. gum or all kinds of obnoxious stuff that your math teacher did. So Coughlin was the math <laughs> teacher. Andy Reid was like, 
I don't know. What was another core class? Not the English teacher, because that he was your social studies teacher. He was the one that I would, would do. He was the one that would do fun stuff like let's all pretend we're uh, we're uh, we're we're rebel spies for the Confederacy. And well, that's probably a horrible. Example. I love when Gene starts to bring out these analogies because I just like hold my breath and go like, what is he going to wait? Out? Wait, wait till I get in. The, wait till I get into the Dixie part of my analogy. Um, but. <laughs> But like that was the thing it was like Andy Reid seemed like the fun guy in the in the division, and Coughlin seemed like the real like nozzle of the division as far as coaches were were uh, concerned. Um, yeah, he's the assi- he was like the assistant principal, like yeah, the guy like that would always. But always cracked me up because like by the same note, the biggest class clown in in the division, going with the junior high school analogy of the NFC East, was Michael Strahan, and he was such buds with Coughlin. Um, you know, you'd always see him like arm and like his arm around him and his big stupid grin. No, and... I hate Michael Strahan. Like I, I... Michael <laughs> like what the fuck? Like, how is this guy like oh now I'm on like Good Morning America? He's, you know, Michael and, and Kelly. Like, what is this? Like, why do I have to have Michael Strahan constantly shoved in my face all the time? I cannot. I can't watch. I can't watch him. He's on the TV. I got to turn it off. I cannot look at these like former rivals. It, it drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And he's on like the new version of like twenty five thousand oh, dollar pyramid. Yeah, no, get the hell out of here with this. Yeah. It, I mean, honestly, as an Eagles fan, can you watch this crap? No. No. And he doesn't even have that great a personality. He reminds me of, um, like a poor man's Anthony. Oh Lord, I'm blanking on his last name. He was in Barbershop. He's in Blackish. Anthony, help me out. Anderson. Anyone? Anderson, thank you. He reminds me a poor man's version of that. <laughs> like he doesn't have much charm. You know, he's kind of big and goofy, I guess. And yeah, he has the funny teeth. But no, what's what? He didn't play in this game, did he? No, Strahan didn't. I was just making an analogy to the fact that, uh, like, okay, because watching this game, I was reminded how much I hated uh, Yuma Yura. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And was he the one that had the 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 face mask that had like, like eighty-seven the angry cage. bars going yeah. across it? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So that nobody could stick their thumb in his eye. Yeah. Which no. I think has been outlawed. You can't wear that face mask anymore. I wonder why. <laughs> I I think probably because. It was too intimidating. Hideous. I don't. I don't know. Probably concussions. If I like, it's if you have to come up with a guess in the NFL and you don't know the answer, just say concussions. So, um, yeah. So rank this particular weekend of sports, the the miracle of the Meadowlands two weekend. Do you remember the other thing that happened huge in Philadelphia sports that weekend? That nearly, Uh, nearly overshadowed it just because of. Um, how popular the other team in the league uh, in the in the city was at the time? Was it the Doc signing? You are so close. You're so close. Wrong pitcher. Oh, uh, Lee. Then right. It was. This was. The, I was one year old. I guess. Yeah. This was the great weekend where we literally just stuck both thumbs into New York's eyes and twisted. Like yeah, and that was my uh, my Christmas card that year was holding up the uh, the New York Daily News. It just said Scrooged. Right. <laughs> we so signed this Cliff is week Lee, 15, and I know the, and Ma- uh, just, the and Mets and Yankees both really wanted. And him. we had just we had just signed Cliff Lee. 
We just got him back. So that's one of the top Philly sports weekends as far as I'm concerned. I would say number one is winning the Super Bowl, probably. Uh, <laughs> that happened on a Sunday. Um, one of the other ones I ranked pretty high, oddly enough, and you guys are going to be like, I don't know if this is one of the ones I would hold highly enough. But at the time, I was really excited about this, was trading Donovan McNabb. I was actually really excited about the Easter Sunday that we traded Donovan. Um, I, I was happy to see him go. He had... He had overstayed his welcome and got so passive aggressive. It's like this had nothing to do with his play on his field. It had nothing to do with the character of him as a human being. It just had to do, oh, Donovan, shut the hell up a little bit. You know, and we tr- and the trading him on Easter Sunday, that was back when the, the Phils and the Eagles had a little bit of a, a rivalry. They a seemed to be like trying to outdo one another. Yeah, it was who's going to – and I still don't know if there's any validity to that, but I still feel like we always be like, oh, if one of the teams is getting more um, more pressed than the others. I mean, it goes back to even in recent history, the Eagles win the Super Bowl, so what do the Phillies have to go out and do? Sign Bryce Harper. So, I mean, this, yeah. this, this is kind of like whether it's real or imagined, there certainly seems to be enough evidence to point to it being certainly something to talk about. It was like, Donovan, our air rock band does not need a banjo. Right. <laughs> so. I, and, and the reason I was so happy about it was I was just done and ready to be the next. Uh, you know, I was heartbroken when Randall Cunningham left. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be uh, – you know, heartbroken when a guy like Ben Simmons or, or Joel Embiid move on to another team. I was not heartbroken when Donovan McNabb, and I have a McNabb jersey that still hangs in my closet. I was not heartbroken to hang that up and not wear it anymore. Not at oh, This all. is a podcast for the podcast, but like, do you think the era of being heartbroken when a player leaves your team is still a thing? I, that Yeah, that is a topic for another show. Um, I would say yes, but I think this becomes more rare. Yeah. I think the idea that someone's going to spend their whole career with or your does it like leave when you like leave your childhood behind and you leave such childish things as fantasies <laughs> that your players are going to stay with the team forever. Oh, that's that's a bit true too, but you know me, I always think of the Flyers and the longest tenured athlete in Philadelphia by a good stretch is Claude Giroux. Yeah. You know. Well, my and... son was heartbroken when Freddie Galvis left. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, a rough, son... rough road ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, but he had a small window. You know, it's back when you thought like somebody who remembered two presidents like was really old. You know, <laughs> But it's, you know, if Giroux left, you know, to try to have a second chapter to his career at this point, that would be heartbreaking. If, you know, we take it, you know, have two, three good years and Giroux says nuts to this, I'm going off to join the Penguins or the Capitals or or the blues or Boston to chase a cup that, that would suck. You know, if he thought that he couldn't win a cup of the flyers, if it was, Hey, it's Drew's last season. He's got, you know, you know, the flyers aren't going to make the playoffs this year. You know, 
and he goes the avalanche, you know, for three months, that's something different. But no, it's it's uh you know it is a different era and it is a it is a different show. There's a lot of talk about there. Yeah. So um I think this is a good time to close the discussion on the uh, on the miracle of the Meadowlands too. Uh, and uh, to to close the show, Gene, you have another game for us. Uh, less of a game. Remote and... Gene is back with another game. <laughs> less of a game and, and more of a um, an if uh, an if then or maybe not even so much an if then. Are we writing Excel formulas? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> We're gonna hear if then statements. So here's here was while while I was watching this game, I like I was saying earlier, I, I went and I watched. A lot of, um, and I hope I'm not stealing anybody's answer by saying this. I went and watched a lot of footage of the other possible things considered miracles of the Meadowlands. So I thought, what a cool thing to be ha- to have in a um, in a sports memorabilia collection would be to have that the football that was the one recovered by Herm Edwards in the Miracle of the Meadowlands. Like if you were to, if you were walk into somebody's house. And in a you know in a cube there was with Herm Edwards and Joe Pisarczyk's, um autographs on the football slightly deflated because it seems like every football that's like in under glass has to be slightly deflated. Um, <laughs> that football, like as the crown jewel of your um, of your uh, memorabilia. So uh, that would be like one example of an answer. Like what would be if money was not an object? If you could just have one crown jewel in a sports memorabilia uh often uh one of my things my dad says is one of the things he would like would be one of the u.s men's basketball silver medals that they've never accepted when they lost to the soviets do you guys know that story mm, how they yeah. i do that's good and 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 there's there's like 10 of them or 11 of them however many more on the the team and officially and t- as long as none of the you know if one of them takes them then i guess they they they're locked in a vault nobody has ever has ever taken that silver medal they just you know, players that on that team have died. So he always said it would be cool to have one of those medals because they're they're priceless. If you could think of a piece of sports memorabilia, whether it be a jersey, a piece of equipment, uh, something that you could have from Philadelphia sports lore that you could have as the crowning jewel, the centerpiece, the grail, so to speak, of your sports memorabilia collection, um, do you have any thoughts as to what your one piece that you would you'd break the bank for? Chuck, what puck are you uh, are you taking? Um, that that's a tough question. It's this is not my definitive answer because I think I was having internet problems when Gene told us what the the category would be. So this is just off the top of my head, I kind of no that that's not what I was thinking of. I was going to say Leclerc's goal that. I want the netting that where it went through. <laughs> um, but let's, hmm. I would want Simone Gagne's jersey from game seven um, against the Bruins in 2010. You know, there, there's probably something more unique, but Gagne is a special player for me loved him throughout his career and that was the the highlight of his career if i think if you ask me to think of simone gagne i'm going to think of two things one the last conversation i ever had with my grandfather the person i was named after 
uh, back in 2000 about Simone Gagne. And the other is going to be his celebration when he scored to put the Flyers up four to three game seven. So I'd want that Gagne jersey from that game would be my my memorabilia. You want me to go, Dave, or do you want to go? Um, why don't you go, Gene? All right. So um, I rolled through a lot of ideas in my head. And uh, one of the first things that struck me was, you know, I'd want something from the 08 team because that was really the first championship that I can vividly remember in my lifetime. Um, but then I thought, actually, technically, even though I don't remember it, the first championship that was won in my lifetime was in October of 1980. And is there anything iconic from that championship that I would want? And it came to me like literally in a flash, in an image. Um, I can't think of a more iconic, uh, maybe there are three iconic uh, images, but the, probably the most, uh, since, since I can remember visually understanding things, is Tug McGraw with his arms outstretched after um, beating the Royals in 1980. And the thing I would want from that game would be his baseball glove under glass with, um, you know, near life-size photograph of Tug with his arms outstretched. Um, it, it's, it, it serves so many purposes. It's, it's a championship, which is a rare thing in Philadelphia. It's, um, it's an iconic piece of a great team in the city. It's the year I was born. So it's within my lifetime. And there are very few people, uh, that were as def you know, in my experience as a kid that had so much joy as a player to be around when you would see him on TV or talking with other players. And so universally beloved by all his teammates and people that interacted with him as Tug McGraw. So having something that also would kind of channel his energy uh, into uh, a collection. I feel like that would be one of those things that if you were walking to a museum or, you know, a giant lounge where I would have all these other cool things, like that would be an excellent centerpiece. Yeah, I think I got to go back to that 80 team too because for so long as a baseball fan, that has been that has been the thing we cling to and like those guys were kind of like, you know, the gods on Olympus when it comes to Philly's Philly's history. So I, I kind of have two. So one, you know, one would be if I could have the Michael Jack Schmidt number 500 home run ball somehow, like just having that would be really incredible, like something that the Hall of Fame would want to have. But like, no, I have it. Sorry, you can't you can't take it, although you should really have it. So I'd give it um, on loan on loan from the Diorio collection, something like that. Um, but the other one, you, you know, uh, Steve Carlton has always been, you know, my favorite Philly, you know, um, just being left-handed, you know, him being lefty, uh, just such a, I mean, just such a horse uh, for that 80 team. And, you know, I have, I have Carl, I have a Carlton autograph ball and I have, you know, some art autograph, you know, artwork and stuff. Um, but to have a ball from his 300th win, um, autographed, I think would be, would be something really cool to have to kind of round out like my Steve Carlton fandom. Uh, but yeah, I think going back to that 80 team would be something really cool. 
All right, I want to change mine quickly or add to mine because I want the moment to be bigger. You know what I want? I want Bernie Perrant's mask that was worn on that Time magazine cover. Oh, that's cool. Ooh. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a plain white mask. So, yeah. But if I could know that it was that one. Right. With the Time magazine cover, uh, that money is no object. I would. That would be... I'd spend days just staring at the thing. I, I don't know if there's another player from that era as associated with that style of mask either. I think it would be pretty, as soon as you walked into the room and saw it under under glass, you'd know exactly that that was a, a Bernie mask. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about some other stuff? What about, like, uh, one of Andy Reid's, uh, like, Denny's menus? Yeah. <laughs> that he would carry around with. Uh, I have an autographed Andy Reid challenge flag still in the pocket. Unused. Yeah, never used. <laughs> Unused. I, I think I'd want a set of Chase Utley's shoelaces, as weird as that might sound, because I feel like I would be able to, like, I would love to literally lace up, like, my shoes <laughs> with Chase Utley's shoelaces every day. Like, that That seems like, like it would John be John Cruck uncleaned helmet? Ugh. <laughs> That, the funk on that thing would be unreal. Like actual dirt from ninety, dirt and pine tar from ninety three. Yeah. Is there yeah. any? Is there anything from the Sixers that you would want? Is there a particular uh, game ball or? Uh, I'd I'd like to maybe go swimming in that in that uh, that swimming pool where that picture of Minute Bowl was taken, where uh, <laughs> he's covering the entire bottom of the pool, like because he's eight feet twelve or whatever, however tall he was. Um, that might be kind of a I, cool, I, and maybe that would be more of a cool experience to have to swim in the minute bull pool. I'd want the wardrobe AI left behind in LA after game one of, uh, well, I guess game one and two of the uh, 2001 finals. Because Gene, you told us he didn't pack clothes, he would just buy them and leave them. So he must have left behind some clothes in LA. I'd I'd want AI's wardrobe. Yeah. What about the original draft of the Hinky Manifesto, complete oh, with his handwritten edits? That would be <laughs> awesome. That would be awesome. You would just need like forty some frames to like hang it up. Like one oh, page, it would it would be a wall. It would be the manifesto wall. It would I would have every page would be properly displayed. I hope it's not front and back because I want to see every damn word. I, I'd I, like the pat. The password to uh, Jerry Colangelo's uh, burner accounts. Yeah. <laughs> what about outtakes to uh, Pat Burrell's Playgirl um, shoot? That might be handy <laughs> to have. Uh, that's, a, that's a hard pass for me. <laughs> Pat um, Burrell's Black Book. Yeah. Oh, Ooh. those those ladies are all in their 60s now. Um, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> um. Did I ever tell you my closest brush I ever had with like true greatness of the 1980 team? Uh, no. When I worked at Sears, I used to sell uh, microwaves, and Dallas Green lived in Newport, which was 10 minutes from where I worked. And um, he came back after he had managed the team, and in the off season, when he wasn't doing stuff for the organization, he would just be in Delaware. And one day, and I mean, obviously, I recognized him from 100 feet away walking into the store. He came in, and he bought a microwave from me. And I got to spend literally 20 minutes just 
showing him microwaves and talking to him about microwaves and the kinds of things he likes to cook in his microwaves, mostly popcorn. Um, and um, at the end of it, he was having trouble getting into his getting into his pants to get his wallet out because he had his 1980 World Championship ring on. So he took his 80 championship ring and put it on the counter. And I said, that's amazing. Like, I, and usually I was very cool in these sorts of situations, but like it just vomited out of my mouth. That's amazing. Um, and he held it up and he had it on his palm and he said, I'd ask you to try it on, but it looks like it would be a bracelet on you. Mm. Um, and he gave me his wallet and we, I rang up the sale and he, he, he let me hold it. I, I mean, obviously I could kind of slip it between two fingers. It was massive. Um, and so I got to kind of wear one of the 80 championship rings for about two and a half seconds. Uh, and then he shook my hand and gave me one like like a pat on the back, like I imagine he'd probably given to thousands of rookies over the course of his baseball career. And uh, that was my brush with with eighties greatness. And I, I like to think that um, I, I didn't wash my hand like that night, but I have since. But um, I remember coming <laughs> home and telling my dad that night, I was like, I, I can't wash this hand. And he's like, Ugh everybody's worn that ring in the state of Delaware. You, you should probably <laughs> wash your hand. Just um, wash. Just wash. Um, but yeah, so that was my brush with, uh, with, with the, uh, as close as nice. I, as close as I've ever gotten to a championship that's, ring. Of is it show. weird to just like wear your championship ring? Like everywhere? I don't I know. Think man. No. I no? think if I had one, I definitely would. Would you? I feel right. like I kind of would. Well, but I, I have two things about Jim Stewart, though. I, like, if I was Tom Brady, I wouldn't wear them all. I think I'd have to rotate them. You yeah. Know? I'm going to wear 05 today. But, but Gene, two things about your story. One, great story. Uh, but two, you said, normally I'm pretty cool in these situations. <laughs> How many microwaves have you sold to celebrities? Um, like, is this... <laughs> It wasn't that common. I once sold one. It's usually to, vacuums. I once, sure. <laughs> I once sold paint to Ryan Phillippe's cousin. Does that count? Uh, that counts. That um, counts. Delano De Shields. I sold. Uh, I sold a mattress to Delano De Shields. Um, uh, you know, there's only so many famous Delawareans. Um, have you said? Have you sold a toaster to the Biden family? <laughs> No, not I did not sell a toaster to like the vice president, but I did get to meet uh, his son Bo at the radio station while I was working. He was a really oh. great guy. Well, I, I mean, when your state's a thimble, you know what are you gonna do? Exactly. <laughs> you know, I imagine that love there, you, Delaware. Love you. I can't think you of a single them. famous person from Rhode Island, so at least we have a couple. True. Yeah, Gene, you're the fifth most famous person from Delaware. Strange. So currently, yes. It's not even yeah. because of this podcast. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, join us next week. I hope we do another another classic rewatch uh, to talk about. Um, if you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and the show, <laughs> rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Also, check us out on sh- social media: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any more time in your podcast listening day, be sure to check out the Whip Around for all your weird news of the week. Uh, And on that note, uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, Stay safe, everybody. We're out of here. Bye.